today on Ag News Daily. It really started as a grassroots organization uh, to promote uh, ethanol and, and uh, alternatives uh, that try to help in the biofuels market. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily podcast, joined by my co-hosts Mike Pearson and Madison Honkamp. Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. How are things looking in Iowa today? Rainy. How are things looking in Chicago? A little cloudy. Potential for rain on the way is where we are sitting today as that storm system moves across Iowa into Illinois and probably on into places that don't need the rain like Indiana and Ohio. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Mike, since you brought that rain up, what are you hearing from folks on this year's crop progress tour or farm progress pro-farmer tour? I'm getting all my tours mixed up. Pro-farmer crop crop tour. Yes, that one. I'm hearing lots of things. Basically, I think the gist of it, folks, uh, check out Pro Farmer if you haven't uh, seen these. The gist of it is yields are down. Um, Pod counts are substantially down from last year, both in the eastern and western corn belts. And that the USDA has room to come to the downside before we get to January's report. The major question remains, and this isn't from Crop Tour, this is just me thinking out loud. When will USDA begin to lower those yields, begin Mm -hmm. to lower those uh, both corn and bean yield expectations? And when will they impact the commodity markets? Well, whenever USDA decides to lower them would be my guess. Well, right. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're on the same page then, Delaney Howell. Okay. I I smell what you're stepping in. Okay, good. Picking up what you're putting down. Great. Madison Honkamp, what's new in your world? Not a lot, Mike. It was... Like Delaney said, it was just really rainy to, here in Iowa today. So, well, haven't been able things, to do much. <laughs> well, that's some, sometimes those days are kind of nice. Yes, very true. Savor I know them. Savor the Madison Honkamp. Eventually, <laughs> you get grown up, and those days just disappear yeah, completely. That's true. True. Very just true. Just work, 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 as I think Iggy Azalea once said. Hmm. Right? No sure. Idea work yeah i don't know if that's anyway. who that's by but yeah i know what song you're talking about okay I think Let's just try a little and... pop culture there i think yeah. it might be rihanna not iggy azalea. that's exactly <laughs> rain went as soon as i said iggy azalea it's i mm. think you're right madison i'm gonna trust the the youngest millennial on this issue <laughs> yep well, I tell you what, speaking of being trusted on issues, the U.S. Federal Reserve is widely regarded as the most trustworthy central bank, and they announced a rate cut here not too terrible long ago. And we get the notes out of that meeting today, and they said they really did debate cutting interest rates more aggressively than they ended up doing. They ended up just cutting a quarter of a percent off the Fed's funds rate, but they were um, seriously looking at, at doing much more than like a half. However, they were worried that might create the appearance that the Fed would be willing to lower rates again in the future, which is not something they wanted to project out to the market. They just wanted to say, okay, we recognize the challenges out there in the global trade war. We recognize what that does to economic growth. We're going to cut rates just a tick or now. And so I thought that was a, an interesting look, kind of some inside baseball into how the Fed thinks. That is interesting, and it's going to be interesting to see how the Fed reacts as we see the yield curve inversion there. And it sounds like President Trump has said that folks better strap in for the long haul here on the trade war, but he doesn't think that it's going to lead to a recession. He said in a quote to reporters, 
Whether the trade war is, quote, good for our country or bad for our country short term, long term, it's imperative that somebody does this. And China wants to make a good deal, but it has to be a fair deal to us. It can't be a deal that's not fair to us. And interestingly enough, we also saw some reports come out today talking about just how much the tariffs have impacted U.S. consumers because, as President Trump has stated, you know, China's the one paying for it, when in reality, the cost of goods is more expensive. And a new study put out by J.P. Morgan said that the U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods could cost American households now $1,000 per year. Prior to that, it was about $600 per year, but they're expecting that to rise if President Trump goes through with those tariffs um, both in September and December. Yep, yep. You know, that's another $110 or $160 billion worth of goods that could face a tariff just in time for the holiday season Mm -hmm. when a lot of folks, a lot of consumers go out there and spend some money. Maybe buy your holiday Mm -hmm. presents now. Exactly. There's some arbitrage opportunities in this. Go ahead, get a, get all of those hot Christmas gifts right oh, now. Yeah. And then really once December ahead of rolls around and the prices jump by 10%, boom, you flip that sucker on Craigslist. And, hey, <laughs> you just give your kids cash money for Christmas. I'd take that. Right? Yep. We all would. Yep. Maybe not like a toddler. Right. Right. Keep keep that money and, you know, wrap up some old stuff and give that to your toddler. They'll just be excited <laughs> to unwrap a present. That is absolutely <laughs> true. Thanks for tuning in to Parenting Corner here on Ag News Day. <laughs> um, actually, Delaney, I wanted to pick up somber, somber story, though it is. I've got one that ties in as well. We've got another report on the impact of the trade war, this one from the Congressional Budget Office. And they said that higher trade barriers, including the tariffs, are taking a toll on the U.S. economy. The CBO expects the trade wars to shave and wars, you know, in plural, we have put tariffs and different tariffs on lots of different products, not just on China. So they're looking at the whole picture. They're saying they expect it to shave 0.3% from global GDP by 2020. So when President Trump talks about strapping in for the long haul, he's not strapping in for a comfortable ride. He's telling us we got to strap in for something that is definitely going to hurt the U.S. economy and hurt U.S. consumers and hurt taxpayers in the name of I, whatever it is we're trying to get out of China. And it seems like since we're talking about tariffs, I'm just going to continue right through it here because we have struck a trade deal with Mexican tomato producers to allow more free trade or for trade to continue without tariffs, but under specific conditions to protect U.S. producers from underpriced imports. It seems the Commerce Department has struck a deal this week and they've drafted a suspension agreement which sets several reference prices to address U.S. producers' claims that Mexican importers have been basically dumping their tomatoes into the U.S. markets well below market prices. So it seems like that trade dispute has kind of gotten resolved here, and the new deal will go into effect September 19th. All right. Well, we've got progress. Anytime we can get a trade deal done or a trade dispute negotiated, that's a move in the right direction, and I'm sure that would be cheered by the uh, groups like J.P. Morgan and the CBO. Yes, I think so. Madison, what news is jumping out at you today? Well, today we will be seeing um, Representative Cindy Axine of Iowa call for an investigation into the EPA's decision to expand the number of oil refinery exemptions. Um, again, the agency has granted about 31 waiver waivers to 31 small refineries, really sparking lots of complaints from our corn growers and ethanol producers. And I 
think she will be in Southwest Iowa at the Southwest Iowa Renewable Energy um, Conference today to kind of ask the EPA's inspector general to really investigate this highly questionable decision making. All right. Yeah, we'll just have to see if if these oil companies were able to maintain enough fictitious barriers Mm -hmm. between themselves and their quote unquote small refineries at places like ExxonMobil and Chevron. Yes. And the EPA is saying like their quote was no harm, no foul. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Wow. That was kind of a kind of a ballsy quote there from the EPA. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Well, does any of us have any other news before we jump into the markets? I have just uh, one other quick update here when we're looking at what's going on on the trade front, and that is with Japan. Senator Chuck Grassley has once again made comments to reporters that negotiations are going on kind of under the radar between the U.S. and Japan, and he said that they are expected to produce a deal which would lower tariffs on U.S. farm goods and whatnot, and he's expecting that here within the next, really, two months, it sounds like. Two to three months. Well, the trade news continues, this time a little bit of a better story. That's right. Well, fantastic. Madison Honkamp, any other news you want to get to before we chat markets today? I don't. Excellent. Well, let's just dive right in. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a green day in the grains today. September corn was up three cents to finish at 362 and a half, with December up one and a half, closing the day at 370 and a quarter. In soybeans, that September contract was up four and three quarters, finishing the day at 860 and a half, with the November contract also up four and three quarters to close the day at 873 even. Chicago wheat even saw some slight gains today. The September contract was up two and a half cents at 462 and a half. The December up one and a half, Close the day at 468. Now let's take a jump over to the world of livestock, all things that moo and oink. Let's see where their prices finish today. And we've got green on the screen in the cattle complex. Looking at the August live cattle, they were up 87.5 cents at 102.6750, and the October up 22.5 cents to close the day at $1.22 and a half. Uh, cents, uh, $100 a hundredweight, basically. In feeder cattle, the August contract was up $1.0750, finishing at one thirty seven thirty seven fifty. The September up $1.5750, closing the day at one thirty five thirty. And in lean hogs, a bit of a day to the downside. The October dropped $1.6750 at $63.30, and the December was down $1.50, wrapping the day at $62.67 and a half. We can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry jumping over to the world of dairy. We can see that class three milk today, the August contract was down a penny at seventeen sixty, and the September down sixteen, finishing the day at seventeen fifty-four. Delaney Howell, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Well, you know, I think it's a really timely interview conducted by Bruce Gorder, one of our field reporters, with Dwayne Christensen, who is the president of the board of directors for the American Coalition for Ethanol. So let's turn it over to Bruce and his conversation with Dwayne. The American Coalition for Ethanol recently held its 32nd annual meeting. I talked to Dwayne Christensen. He's president of the ACE board, and we talked about ACE and the future of the ethanol industry. The American Coalition for Ethanol is based out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and it really started as a grassroots organization uh, to promote uh, ethanol and and, uh, alternatives 
uh, that try to help in the biofuels market. So uh, this is the 32nd uh, convention that we've had, annual meeting, and uh, it's it started with a lot of local farmers and rural cooperatives and uh, electrical cooperatives along with some ethanol plants, albeit there wasn't as many ethanol plants at that time that have joined uh, currently. So uh, it's just a big, a broad-based grassroots organization. And the overall purpose? So it really is to go forward with the eth- this ethanol uh, industry. And so a lot of it sets back here in a localized area in the states of uh, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, uh, Iowa, Minnesota. It's kind of the, the real base of it and to promote and, and to do some things, but also in a federal standpoint. So even though we don't have an office uh, on the Hill, there's a lot of negotiation, a lot of discussions with it. And we take an annual uh, fly-in up to the Hill and visit uh, all of the representation up there too. But um, it, it really is trying to drive and have this policy uh, established so that we know where we're at and, and how to go forward. Let's look at some things that have been in the news uh, recently. First of all, on the good news front, finally the EPA has allowed uh, the sale of E15 year-round to vehicles 2001 and newer. How big of an impact can that be? So E15, and I'll also include higher blends. I mean, E15 was sort of the first step, but there is uh, an option, certainly, to go to even higher blends, to E20, E30, which we see there's some uh, experimentation with these higher blends that are out there because they are substantially similar. So it took such a long time to get this through the EPA to say that we could have this um, one-pound waiver is really what it would be. But it is E15 is substantially similar. So to work in automobiles, especially the fuel injection automobiles that's came on since 2001, that's kind of why they picked that as, as a date, um, it, it certainly opens the market up for much higher usage. And with today's automobiles and fuel injections and turbos, there is much more of a demand for the higher octane, the, the, the higher components that ethanol can bring to the, to the fuel supply. And that is exactly what we're looking for. And so there is real opportunity. Ethanol uh, being an E15 is not a mandate. It is just the opportunity to go to these higher blends. And when ethanol is uh, a cheaper alternative to gasoline, uh, we foresee that we would see substantially more gallons going in, into that marketplace and should. What do you need to do to get more and more retailers to offer E15? Because that seems to be one of the problems right now is is finding the product. Right. So one of the things that this has given, so E15 has been allowable uh, for many years, uh, but not during the summer driving season because of the one-pound reed vapor pressure uh, waiver that has been granted. So by allowing it to be in a pump all year round has eliminated some of the difficulties that stations who might have used it before, uh, that they can just leave it in and don't have to worry about pulling it back out, having some fuel mislabeling, that type of a thing. So this is really the first step. So as we see this market go forward, and as we see more uh, people utilizing E15, one of the things that has been very um, strongly correlated is when the first station in town comes with E15 and they start to see that demand go up, then the other stations come right along afterwards. But it, it is just takes some time. And since E15 is basically happening this year, it, it, this is kind of a slow uh, rollout, but we assume that there's going to be substantially more coming along soon, quickly. 
Now, the, the, the public gets a little confused because of labeling. Every, every station, every company labels it a little bit different. Uh, is, is there anything in the works to try to get the labeling on a consistent basis? Well, and that's a really kind of a, a bone of contention exactly. That does, some people will look at it and say, E15, hey, I want to use the higher blends. Other people don't really care. I mean, the average consumer walks into a, uh, a gas station, they look at the prices on the pump and says, hey, I'm going to take whatever's cheapest because my automobile can do that. And, and again, E15 is allowable in your automobile. And even if you have a pre-2001, E15 is still going to work in your automobile. It's not like it's it, it is incompatible, so it will work. And so as we get more of those coming in there, uh, do you really want, and different states have different labeling laws, do you really want to show that E15 or the Clean 88, which is kind of a, a, a brand that has really taken over in a number of states and a little variation on exactly what it is, but the Clean 88 basically says, hey, we have a higher octane. And that's what you're after as an automobile uh, driver and a gasoline consumer is do you want that higher octane and that fuel in there? So is it ethanol that's in there? Do you really care? Most consumers say, no, I don't care. I just want a better fuel. And that's what ethanol brings to you. So whether it is E15 on the pump or whether it just shows that it's a 88 octane or even higher octanes, um, then that's really where we're going to. So it, it's, there's a little different uh, perception on how we should go forward with some of those labelings. Again, with the EPA just uh, recently announced uh, a number of small refinery exemptions, uh, more than your industry w would like to see. I explain what that uh, exemption is and how it's going to affect the ethanol industry. Sure. So the small refinery exemption is a large deal. Um, so when the RFS was put in, the small refinery exemption was part of the RFS. It was understood uh, the way that it is if there's some um, economic uh disorientation, I guess, for a small refiner, they could opt out of the RFS. But up until these last few years, whenever there was a grant of a waiver, and, and there have been 50, 60 percent of the small refiner exemptions granted even previous to 2016, those gallons were reallocated back into to the, to the mix. And that is what the, the way the RFS, the way Congress had written that law. But what's happened here recently in the last couple of years, and basically it started with Scott Pruitt's EPA, is that it was those, those waivers were granted after the fact. So a lot of the waivers are supposed to be granted coming into the year. These have been granted backwards into previous years. So the waivers that were just granted now were for 2018. So it's after the fact. So those um, refiners can split the RINs back off, but basically it lowers the obligation. So there is uh, you know, billions of gallons of demand that should have been imposed that have simply disappeared by some of these actions that have not been reallocated. So from the ethanol industry, we're saying that's not the way the law was written. That's not the game plan that we were told when we developed the industry and the, and the American farmer developed the uh, corn uh, increase in production that we've been running here at these last few years. That's not the rules of the game that were originally put in there. These things are changing without any prior knowledge of it, and that's where we're coming back. So some of the small refinery exemption are the people who shouldn't qualify, and certainly it's not the way that the law was written that it was supposed to be implemented. One more question. Um, like much of agriculture, the ethanol industry is in a kind of a rough patch right now. Uh, looking forward, as you look forward to what your board can be doing, what are you going to try to focus on? 
So there's a couple of things. Uh, certainly one of them is to try to get an understanding and try to have the White House understand what these small refinery exemptions are doing. So uh, the, the way that we're looking at the renewable fuel standard, 15 billion gallons is where we're supposed to be at for corn-based uh, ethanol. So by having a higher blends, which are acceptable, and we can have even higher blends, by utilizing the octane that's in the fuel, we should have a domestic demand that sits there. And currently, uh, we have not hit that that level at this time. But the other thing is the export markets. And as you look around, uh, we just had a speaker earlier here today, Ryan Legrand with the Grains Council. Uh, they're talking about all the different markets in the world. So some of them are looking at it from an environmental standpoint because ethanol does clean up, uh, helps uh, emissions, tailpipe emissions. So like be India and parts of China and Mexico. And then also uh, other countries that are looking at it simply for the octane, like the United Arab Emirates, um, again, a number of other countries around the world look at ethanol for different components that can add to their fuel supply. So assisting the, the Grains Council and other industries, uh, ACE has been very active in sending people around the world uh, to try to develop some of these markets and to explain the benefits. So we see an increase of worldwide demand moving right along. Uh, probably this year we'll be about in that 1.5 to 1.6 billion gallons um, exported out of the U.S. So a very strong component for a U.S. economy combined with a local domestic demand and try to continue to hold that and not see more demand destruction coming along there. Our thanks to Dwayne Christensen. He's the president of the Board of Directors for the American Coalition for Ethanol. I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. Well, a big thank you there to Bruce for putting that interview together for us. Folks, I want to just share again. I know we've shared before on the podcast, but maybe we've got some new listeners. If you'd like to try your hand at reporting or covering a conference or event, we'd love to hear from you. And you can reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Ag News Daily. Absolutely, folks. And at, or excuse me, agnewsdaily.com is the place you can go to find all of our past episodes. It'll take you to our new home at the Global Ag Network, where you can tune into our podcast as well as the podcasts of others like minded individuals in the world of agriculture. And as always, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. And like magic, we shall appear. With that, Madison Honkamp, shall we let the people go? Let's let them go. 